Welcome to the Faith Dialogue Podcast with your host, Pastor Ken Baer. Are you ready to swim in the deep end of the Bible pool or climb to the top of Faith Mountain? If so, open the eyes that see, those ears that hear, and a heart that is receptive. Get your cup of coffee and your Bible as we begin. Hi, welcome to our study today. I'm Pastor Ken Bear with Faith Dialogue. I'm one of the pastors here in Celebration, Florida. Our Wednesday messages are all part of a series that we call Pondering Prophecy. And over the past few months, we've had the opportunity to speak on a number of scriptures that relate to prophecies having to do with the end of days or the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, as we begin these studies, I always feel compelled to review or provide an overview of the timeline of the end times, this, this period we know that uh, includes the seven years of tribulation, all of the events prior to the return of Jesus Christ and the establishment of what we call the millennial reign, the thousand year reign of Christ uh, on the earth. Now, ever since Jesus uh, ascended into heaven and departed into the clouds out of the apostles' view, um, believers have been told to look forward to the return of, of Jesus Christ. Now, this event is actually described at the very beginning of the Acts of the Apostles, the, the history of the beginning of the church, in chapter 1, verse 9. And this is what it says. It says, Now when he, that's Jesus, had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up from them, and the cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly towards heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. So, Beginning with these verses, let's establish the criteria that we use in examining prophecy in the New Testament. You know, first of all, when we read these verses, when you heard these verses, do we believe that Jesus was literally, important, literally taken up into heaven as he ascended and ultimately disappeared into the clouds? Well, the answer for most of us is yes, that's what we believe. That's what's, what's written and we believe it to be literal truth. So the, the question, so now stay with me. So the angel said, this same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him, saw him go into heaven. So again, the following question is, do we believe that Jesus will actually, literally return to, physically to this earth? And again, the answer should be yes. And see, that's basically how we take a look at, at prophecy. We're told that, that uh, in, the, in the scriptures that there will be a, a generation, a generation of Christians that, that won't die. They'll be transformed instantly in the twinkling of an eye. They'll actually meet Jesus in the air, in the clouds. And when the scriptures say that, we also take it literally as well. So here's one of the first things that we need to remember when we study prophecy. And that is that whenever possible, let's take the events that are described in the Bible to happen at some time in the future. Let's understand that we interpret them as literally, literally as possible. 
This is very important key in, in prophecy because the thing is, is there's, there's all kinds of symbols when we take a look at prophecy. And the temptation is to allow the symbols to overpower us. To basically believe that everything is to be taken uh, symbolically, that we shouldn't be taking these things literally. But actually, there's a lot of literal truth in what we read in the Bible. For example, Jesus was literally, there's that word again, literally born of a virgin. The Old Testament Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14, Behold! The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, uh, and shall be called, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. This now Matthew, the Gospel account of Matthew, talks about this event and talks about it as fulfilled prophecy. In Matthew chapter one, verse twenty-one, it says, "She, that's Mary, will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, and he will save his people from their sins." All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So Matthew quotes the prophet Isaiah and said this was literally fulfilled. You know, and this isn't the only time. Over 20 times in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew says something to this effect. This was to fulfill what was spoken of by the prophets. And we see that in Matthew chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 4, 6, 8, and so on. It was prophesied, for example, that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem, be called, to, uh, be called out of Egypt. He would be of Nazareth. He would teach in parables. He would be coming, riding into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, and that he would be rejected by his own people. Over and over again, the Gospels point to Jesus as the fulfillment of prophecy. God said it would happen, and it happened exactly as the Scriptures had described. This literal fulfillment of prophecies in the past is actually the most powerful argument uh, that we have today for the literal interpretation of prophecies. All of those things related to the second coming of Jesus Christ, including the tribulation, the second coming, as well as the millennial reign of Christ. Uh, the argument is often made by others, God bless them, that these prophecies are often wrapped in very symbolic language and it's impossible to actually take them literally. But here's the truth. The, the behind every symbol is a literal event that will be foretold, that is being foretold. Uh, Dr. Thomas Ice, for example, an esteemed scholar and professor of biblical hermeneutics at Liberty University, explains it this way. And I'll quote him. It's, he says, Early in Christ's ministry, John the Baptist said of Jesus as he approached him, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now John used this, a symbol to designate Jesus, the Lamb of God. Yet just because this is a symbol was used doesn't mean that Jesus didn't literally die as a sacrificial lamb for man's sin. We all know that he did. Jesus uses a symbolic reference of, to Christ to complement the point that Jesus came to take away the sin of the world. Although his actual sacrificial death, this prediction was actually fulfilled literally in history, and we know this. So this is one of the important keys to understanding prophecy. We take it as literally as possible. Now, Regarding the timeline, remember I said I always feel compelled to give you a, a timeline so that people don't unnecessarily become anxious. 
Regarding the timeline, we understand from Daniel chapter 9 that there is to be one week of years or seven years that is reserved for Israel. The prophet Daniel was praying and while he was praying, the angel Gabriel came to him and said this. He's, Gabriel said, 77s are decreed for your people in your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Now, if you go through Daniel's prophecy and you take a look at the years, you'll see that there are, there's one remaining seven that is unaccounted for. This is the period that scholars understand to be the tribulation. The seven years is the time when God will finalize both judgment on the unbelieving world as well as all of his promises made to, to Israel. Now we, uh, the body of Christ, all those who have trusted in the saving grace and the work of Jesus Christ, will not be present during the seven years of tribulation. One of the prophecies, or two of the prophecies we take literally is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Both of them describe what we use um, in shorthand to describe as the rapture of the church. And actually the rapture of the church is the next event in Bible prophecy. Now this word rapture is taken from a Latin word that means the same as, as it does in the Greek word and it means to be snatched up or to be taken away, to be carried away forcibly. The rapture of the church doesn't begin the tribulation. It actually precedes the tribulation, possibly by minutes or hours or days or years. We're, we're, not, we're not sure. The actual beginning of the tribulation, uh, according to the prophet Daniel, is when there is a, a covenant, a, a peace treaty, that's signed, that's signed by who Daniel describes as the prince of the people who are to come. We know him as the man of lawlessness, or the beast, or the Antichrist. The seven-year peace treaty with Israel begins the tribulation, and we are told that halfway through, or three and a half years or 42 months, this covenant is broken. This is why, this is why we can also make a distinction between the seven years called the tribulation and the last three and a half years, which we call the great tribulation. Jesus speaks of this great tribulation in Matthew 24, and it's also clearly defined in the book of Revelation as three and a half years, 42 months, or 1260 days. If you do the math, they all mean exactly the same thing. It's also referred to as time, times, and half a time in the book of Revelation, or one plus two, which is three, plus a half, three and a half years. Now at the end of the seven years, Jesus returns to the earth with his church, the bride of Christ. And Jesus establishes his physical reign on earth for 1,000 years. That's why it's called the millennium. Scripture says that we, the church, are to rule and to reign with him for these 1,000 years. Okay, so now we've uh, gone through kind of an overview of the time period. We understand the context of what we're going to be talking about. Today we're going to be in Revelation chapter 13 and our topic is the false prophet. And we see this false prophet as the second beast and it's described very clearly in the book of Revelation. So we'll be beginning uh, Revelation chapter 13 verse 11. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. And he had two horns like a lamb, and spoke like a dragon. 
and he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image of the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, and the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Now, just prior to these verses that I read in the book of Revelation, we're introduced to a beast that rose out of the sea. And this beast we see rising from the earth. The first and the second beast are described. Now, many Bible teachers, if not most, see the first beast, the beast from the sea, as who we know as the Antichrist. And this second beast we know as the false prophet. Now, neither beast is specifically named the Antichrist. However, we find it helpful to describe them based on their mission, uh, their job description during these end times. Scripture says that this second beast, well, the one we call the false prophet, has two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. Now, this beast is different than the first beast. He has horns like a lamb. You know, one of the possible explanations of the two horns, and I see this often, is that the horns signify authority. And perhaps because this beast has two horns, he has authority in two different realms, one being spiritual or religious and the other one a political. And, and now that was, certainly was the case. That was the case of the Church of Rome for many centuries after it was the official church of the Roman Empire, uh, as it often ruled in secular matters, including who was to be king or emperor. One of the other explanations, however, and I, and I don't disagree with the idea of the two horns signifying uh, two different realms of authority, but the one that I prefer is that the two horns are described to be like a lamb. Now, if we just go out on the street and ask a hundred random people to describe what a lamb looks like, very few, if any, would describe the lamb having horns. However, Jesus is often referred to as the Lamb of God. So the reference here is likely that he is an imposter, a, a false messiah figure, but he speaks like a dragon, one in league with Satan. You see, despite his lamb-like appearance, the message of the second beast is the same as the message of the first beast. The second beast is actually the third of, a, of the three end-time figures or characters of importance. And these three come together to form what is often called the unholy or the satanic trinity. And this is made clear in Revelation chapter 16, verse 13, where John says this. He says, And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the, of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. See, John is grouping these three together. This is the 
unholy trinity. The three members would be the dragon, who's really, you can think of him as anti-God, the beast, and we can think of him as being anti-Christ, and then the false prophet. He's anti-spirit. Now, the false prophet has an official job description, and we see this in the scripture. It says, he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell on it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. You know, like the authority of the first beast that the false prophet exercises is, is exactly what's referred to in the, in the very next verse. It says he performs great signs so that even he makes fire come down from heaven uh, on the earth in the sight of, of men. Now, this is, a, this is the great deception that Jesus spoke of in Matthew 24. Uh, Jesus spoke of, of not being deceived. He said in Matthew 24, 24, he says, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So it, it's very possible that this false prophet will be the titular head of, uh, of a church, of the end-time church, uh, sometimes what's called the anti-pope. But there may be, of course, many end-time false religions, and there are many end-time false religions that have arisen. Just as Jesus had the apostles that his disciples, this false prophet may also have other disciples with him as well. What's amazing, what's amazing to me is that this false prophet actually causes those who dwell on the earth to worship this image of the beast. Now, Arthur, author and, and pastor Dr. Paul David Tripp uh, says this. He says, human beings by their very nature are, are worshipers. Worship is not something we do. It defines who we are. We cannot divide human beings into those who worship and those who don't. He says, everyone worships. It's just a matter of what and whom we serve. Now, now Dr. Tripp says it's likely undeniable that human beings by nature have an impulse to worship. We also, by nature, and I'll add this, have an undeniable impulse to rebel against God. The false prophet deceives the world and leads everyone to worship the, the Antichrist. Today, today, there's a growing call for a, for a one-world religion. Many evangelical scholars that were initially pleased, for example, with Pope Francis, have been displeased to see what appears to be a rush by the Pope to embrace non-Christian religions, including Islam and Buddhism, and assuring atheists, for example, and I quote him, you don't have to believe in God to go to heaven. Now, while tolerance is likely a huge part of the attraction to one world religion, in contemporary culture we find out that there's one group that there's absolutely no tolerance for. One group. It seems that neither the Pope, the atheist, or the political or culturally elite have any tolerance for one group, and that's the conservative, Bible-believing, evangelical Christians. You know, we see this today in what we call the cancel culture. The anathemas, by the way, declared by the Catholic Church back at the Council of Trent 400 years ago, condemning all who believe in salvation through Christ alone, by faith alone, and grace alone, that still stands. That anathema, that condemnation to Bible-believing Christians still stands. Scripture says that this false prophet performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth. 
this counterfeiter, uh, this, this is a, this is a counterpunch, a counterpunch by Satan to the signs and the wonders and fire that we saw identified in Revelation chapter 11. If you remember in Revelation chapter 11, there were two prophets, two prophets of God, who prophesy in the streets of Jerusalem for 42 months. And they prophesy about Jesus Christ and his second coming and the need for the, the people of the earth to repent. And this is what it says. It says, if anyone tries to harm them, these are the two prophets, fire comes out of their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. They have power to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying, which is 42 months. And they have power to turn the water into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. You know, many people, including myself, believe that some of, the, some of these plagues, the seven seals, the seven, the seven trumpets, depending on when they occur during the tribulation, people will attribute it to these two witnesses in Jerusalem. That's why the whole earth rejoices when they're finally killed. Now, the signs and the wonders of the false prophet deceives those who dwell on the earth. And this is why, as believers, we have to be very careful, very careful about being deceived by signs, miracles, and visions. Like those in Berea that the, uh, the Apostle Paul visited in the, in the Acts of the Apostles. We need to be carefully and consistently uh, careful about using the scripture to be able to determine what we're seeing in visions and signs and prophecies as being, as being true or not. The Word of God is the ultimate authority and it's the genuine faith and practice of the believer and that's found in the pages of the Bible. Now ultimately the false prophet is the one that not only leads those who dwell on the earth, uh, those who are deceived to worship the beast, but the Antichrist, but also it's this false prophet that uh, requires others to, those that dwell on the earth, to take the mark of the beast. It says he causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Now all of this occurs in our timeline in the last three and a half years of the tribulation. This is after the Antichrist has revealed his true colors. Remember the Antichrist is the one that um, has this, this seven-year peace treaty, or at least uh, is there present with the seven-year peace treaty with the Jews. And it's the Jews who initially were enamored by this, this political leader. They suddenly have their, their eyes open. The Bible says that they are presently blinded. Uh, but at the end times, the Apostle Paul says that this will happen, the blinders will come off um, after the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. The unholy trinity brings those who dwell on the earth into their spider's web of deceit. And they persecute those that refuse to take the mark. Those who are called, these people are called, by the way, they're tribulation saints. These tribulation saints are the men and the women that put their faith and their confidence in Jesus. But this is after the tribulation has already started, um, after the church has been removed. And now many of these, many of them are martyred. You know, for all intents and purposes, the persecution and vitriol of the dragon, the Antichrist and the false prophet is indiscriminate. 
because they're attacking and they discriminate, they persecute both the Jews as well as the believers, these tribulation saints. Ultimately, all of the remaining Jews come to faith in Christ as one-third of those that are in Israel escape and are protected by God. And that's, that's also told in the book of Revelation. Now, we're not going to talk today about the mark of the beast. Mark of the beast. That's, a, that's a subject for another time. Actually, we've, we've spoken of it in the past as well, and I'm sure we will in the future. So let's take the remaining time that we have today and uh, take a look at this, this image this image of the beast. Verse 15 tells us that this image of this beast, this false prophet, gives both the ability to breathe and to talk. And now that's not so far-fetched considering today's technology. We can easily see how people can sometimes not tell the real from the imitation. Uh, the scripture says, He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would be as would worship the beast not worship the beast to be killed now this is the idolatrous image that was uh, that would that Jesus Daniel and the Apostle Paul spoke of it's often called the abomination of desolation you can take a look in Daniel 9 27 Matthew 24 15 or 2nd Thessalonians chapter 2 uh, the image this image of the beast is either brought into or erected inside the rebuilt temple. This is a temple that most likely the Antichrist uh, constructs or has constructed. It's during the first three and a half years of the tribulation. It's considered an abomination as it's the poster child of what would be actually supreme idolatry, an image of a man that is worshipped in a temple that's actually to be dedicated to the Lord. And it's likely in the same site as the original temple of Solomon or Herod's temple in the days of the Jews and the Apostles. This is reminiscent also of this huge image, this huge statue that Nebuchadnezzar had built uh, that we read about in Daniel 3, that all of the people in Nebuchadnezzar's reign were to bow down and pay homage. We don't know who this false prophet will be, just as we don't know who the Antichrist will be. However, his description of the, his, his deception of the world will be complete. The scriptures are clear that this final uh, world deception will be universal or worldwide. The Apostle John is the only one that uses the term Antichrist, and he uses it actually in his epistle, um, 2 John. In one passage in, in 2 John it says, children, this is the last hour. And just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists, that's plural, have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. Now, since John wrote this epistle nearly 2,000 years ago, we've had false prophets aplenty, false teachers aplenty. Jesus warned us, beware of false prophets who will come looking like sheep, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. That's Matthew chapter 7. This final Antichrist is the ultimate deceiver, the ultimate ravenous wolf. The Bible is clear, however, that the elect, the saints, will not be deceived. It's impossible, it says, for them to be deceived. Jesus said in the Gospel of John that while the light, the true light, has come into the world, there will be those that prefer the darkness because their deeds are evil. Now this is the fate of all of those who embrace evil and reject the light. They will follow the false prophet, 
They ultimately will worship the false bar, prophet, uh, false of uh, the Antichrist. They'll take the mark of the beast. They'll bow down, and their fate is sure. Their ultimate destruction will happen, just as the scriptures say. But saints, take heart. At the same time, the church, the body of Christ, is not destined to wrath. We are told to look up, for our redemption draws nigh. Let's pray. Father God, we want to thank you for this, this look at uh, what the scriptures have. You've been listening to Faith Dialogue with Pastor Ken Baer, recorded live at Celebrate Seniors, a ministry of Faith Dialogue. You can listen to or watch all of the recordings at Faith Dialogue by going to www.faithdialogue.org.